the museum becomes a kind of front line for really acclimating the public to architecture and to what architecture is doing in terms of its new technologies, but also its new effects. Hello and welcome to Archonnect Sessions One to One. I'm Amelia, and this week I spoke with Dora Epstein-Jones, the newly minted executive director of the A-plus-D Museum in Los Angeles. With a doctorate in architectural history, theory, and criticism from UCLA, Epstein-Jones came to A-plus-D after 15 years at SciArc, where she led the coordination of the humanities and theory courses. Now situated in LA's booming arts district, A-plus-D is neighbor to downtown's own museum renaissance, not to mention the SciArc campus. In our interview, Epstein-Jones imagines how A-plus-D could become LA's storefront, while working to keep it accessible to the local community. Dora Epstein-Jones, with the full understanding that you've taken this post to the Architecture and Design Museum only approximately about a month ago, welcome to One to One. It's great to have you in that capacity. Nice to be here. Thank you. So I wanted to hear your transition story about coming from SciArc. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about the decision process and kind of the mental process behind switching from academic administration into exhibitions and museums. Yeah, that is definitely been the dominant themes of my life for the past few months. It was not an easy decision to come to, but it's one that I've been preparing for for much longer time, I think. People see it as a rather sudden switch from one hat to another, and I don't in the sense that my role at SciArc had been one where I was part of a central team that was in charge of and really commanding a change in the school over a good 15-year process from being kind of an edge condition school, a school that had, you know, some preliminary emerging policies, procedures, financial stability into one that I think now I would safely say is a powerhouse of both content and stability, long-term stability, being an anchor in the arts district and securing its own institutional future. And so while the entire time that I had also been teaching at SciArc and working on my own career as an academic, I would say that I was always wearing this other hat as a key administrator. And obviously, I didn't do it alone. It was with, you know, a concerted group and a concerted effort. But it was something that I had worked on for a very long time and had worked very hard on to secure this stability, this long-term institutional stability for SciArc. And by the time that Hernan has become the director of SciArc, he was also part of this concerted effort. I felt that it was uh, safe to leave, right? That SciArc had secured much of its institutional future and it was in really good hands. And so moving to the museum, the museum has been a wonderful opportunity for me because it's really asked of me to be the things that I already was, which in terms of being an academic, asking me to go ahead and fill the content of the museum, go ahead and become the chief curator and the chief vision behind the museum in its next generation, and as well asking me to play this role as the administrator who can somehow marshal these forces and and put a holistic spin on, on everything. So the role at A Plus D Museum is one where they've hired me to wear two hats. I'm the 
curator, the artistic director, so forth. That's one of my hats. And the other hat is one of the development coordinator, the chief of, you know, revenue and income and so forth. And it's funny, but after 15 years at SciArc, of dividing my time in similar ways, I was able to come on to A plus D, sit down my first day at the desk and know exactly (laughs) what to do. And I owe that in many ways to the people who were at SciArc who really nurtured these talents and abilities that I brought to the job. And actually all the way from Sylvia Levin, who was my dissertation advisor at UCLA, who is a curator, right? You know, who is, a? she was the chair of the department and really was the force behind turning the uh, UCLA former Graduate School of Architecture and Urban Planning into the department under the School of Arts of Architecture and Urban Design. She was that force. And I got a kind of front row seat and was able to watch her and learn from her. And then coming on to SciArc, the same was true of other powerful people. Ming Feng in particular was uh, very influential to me in terms of trying to understand how to put those roles together. But also Hernan Diaz-Alonso and John Enright. John Enright was incredible. I worked directly with him when I was coordinating the general studies program and then the liberal arts program and then eventually with Tom Wiscombe. So I learned from the best and feel like bringing that into the museum is appropriate. But this also speaks to a changed museum. And that's something I think we can talk about. Absolutely. Yeah, changed foremost simply by location. I think that speaks volumes as to the overall museum climate of Los Angeles, where you have the A plus D being a well-known institution directly across the street from Los Angeles County Museum of Art, from the Miracle Mile, like very central in the museum area, and then making this decision to move very far east um, <laughs> by some, by many LA standards, quite far east. Still not east of the river, but um, but into the arts district and to be very close to SciArc in a very quickly developing and very quickly culturally intensifying location to be kind of like this new museum hotspot. Can you speak a little bit to the atmosphere for a design institution and a museum institution such as the A plus D Museum in that kind of climate, particularly yeah. also because of your time at SciArc? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's funny. When I first came into SciArc, we were still in the trailers, right? You know, this was the era when Neil Denari, actually Neil Denari hired me at SciArc. And at that time, it was the toy district. It was like the edge of the produce district. There wasn't really a, quote, arts district. And now, you know, I mean, it's an identifiable arts district. Free with all metro this- line <laughs> and all this stuff, like where really, like arts district is like really, a, a, at the beginning was an aspiration, almost an aspirational right. name, right? It was like, but yeah, please continue. Yeah, now it's a real estate yeah. district, right? You <laughs> yeah. know, I mean, and, and it adds a certain number of, you know, zeros to mm. the loft space, you know, in terms of real estate values. So it's, you know, it's the exciting time. Everybody says the same thing. That's an exciting time for for the arts district. It's an exciting time for downtown Los Angeles. But it is, you know, and there's no doubt that there's a downtown renaissance. And I think it was something that SciArc had foreseen, you know, way before anybody else did. And in part, I would say that SciArc helped initiate, right? It, it, it acted like a kind of anchor to those efforts. And with people like Councilperson Jan Perry at the time, and the activities of, you know, developers like Tom Gilmore really helped to make that district 
the district. And since then, yeah, it's been, you know, just growing and growing and growing and growing. And what was a metro authority is now one Santa Fe. And, you know, what was a abandoned building is now Hauserworth and Schimmel. And Hauserworth and Schimmel, by the way, has more square footage than the old Whitney, which is oh, wow. surprising, right? You know, I mean, because you have to take it at the level of that kind of, you know, serious institution. But then there's companion institutions to this. The the Broad clearly has become one. Mocha is still there, still <laughs> still swinging away. And uh, it's had its share of up and downs, but it's, it's still there. And then we have the move that is impending from ICA, which was the former Santa Monica Museum of Art, and was super happy to see that they had just hired a, a new curator who is a fantastic. And so there is a critical mass, and it's undeniable that's happening in downtown LA. We at A Plus D, it's funny, we actually started in the Bradbury building. Not many people recognize mm-hmm. that. So we actually started in downtown LA in what was a landmark signature piece of architecture as, in some ways, the museum within the museum, right? That the building itself is a kind of museum of an aspiration for Los Angeles architecture back at the beginning of the 20th century. And that would be iron and brick. And, you know, the building has survived, you know, in large parts through, you know, conservation efforts. But what was supposed to be the kind of normative vision of architecture. And it's funny because then when eventually the A plus D museum moved out of the Bradbury building because it needed to be rehabbed, the move was to the Miracle Mile and to the what would eventually then be called Museum row. And it occupied in turn two other forms of iconic architecture in the city of Los Angeles. One was a floor plate style office building. And I curated a show in that building. And when we curated, it was incredibly frustrating because it was a show with paintings and there were no walls to hang paintings (laughs) on. It was like, you know, everything but the the walls to hang, hang paintings on. But, you know, an incredibly iconic piece of modernist architecture on that Miracle Mile. It's like right across from LACMA. Then it occupied the 1930s space, which has since been demolished in order to make room for the metro right next to the Peterson Auto Museum, which I think is the iteration that most people still remember mm. and recall. But, you know, I would say that that in that sense, it was kind of occupying LA's, you know, early modernist phase from Irving Gill, you know, uh, forward into its kind of shopping, right? It's kind of its level of sort of what I would call smaller scale shopping all of Beverly mm. Hills. And now we're in a loft, right? <laughs> so now we're in this big converted industrial space in the arts district. And this does require some tuning of A plus D. It requires tuning of not just its brand, which I think has been durable for 15, 16 years at this point, but it also requires some tuning of trying to understand and reach and connect with its audience in the uh, downtown LA Arts District, which is younger by far. It's a little less tourism driven than the Miracle Mile or Museum row. And then so this has in turn behooved the museum to start to not only take on its identity in in meaningful ways, which which museum has to do 
regardless, but also to start to think about what the museum is doing proactively to the idea of the museum. That in other words, there's a kind of critical project that any one of these locators into the downtown LA arts district has to take on. So whether that's Hauser, Worth, and Schimmel that takes on a kind of identity of a gallery turned into a museum, community center, right? They have a kind of open courtyard, right? Bookstore, they have the relationship with art books, or whether that's the kind of differing or critical project that is afforded by something like One Santa Fe, where it's not just housing, but it's a kind of urban collector space, you know, and there's all of this crossbreeding that's happening in between. And so for A plus D Museum, I think it's really important at this time to start to reimagine, use that opportunity of being in the arts district to reimagine what a museum is given this kind of occupying of an urban infrastructural type of space. And I think that what we're coming to more and more is we're coming to an idea that the museum is a center. It's a kind of hub. It's a place where there are going to be a series of just, you know, events and gatherings and parties and happenstance and pop-ups and, you know, and so forth, as well as the housing of works or the housing of exhibits. And that being in the new arts district means being agile. It means you know, being able to respond to all of this. It also means, you know, being able to jettison out what, you know, is sticking around maybe too long mm -hmm. and is tiring, right? You know, and, and so you have to let go of certain conventions. And that is an interesting opportunity for me now going back to that question of me as the academic. That's an interesting opportunity for me is to continually reimagine what you know, what you have to jettison, what you have to get rid of, not just what you have to adopt. And right now we see not just in the arts district, but also in Chinatown and, and, and downtown at large, there are more museums and smaller galleries popping up specifically around architecture or architectural mm -hmm. themes. In particular, I'm thinking of Jai and Jai Gallery in Chinatown, which is I would say in terms of structure, probably like very, very much embedded. It's a small space, but it is very much in tune with the street. And, and for anyone walking by, it's very accessible. But I'm wondering, and based on what you're saying about this kind of new responsibility of the art institution to kind of be nimble and also respond to these new realities and also playing the role more of a community center, how does that also factor into changing modes of exhibiting architecture? Because, I mean, of course, you can be LACMA or the Getty or so and say you're going to do something crazy and have the, you know, giant backing behind it to kind of support it. But for something more specific, um, like A plus D, how do you go about doing something like that? Well, two parts to this you know, that I, I want to mention. Yeah, Jai and Jai is very interesting model right now, because I think that they're really expanding beyond the scope of like what it means to be a gallery. And again, I also think that they're acting kind of like a little hub, at least for a certain generation of uh, young practitioners and architectural thinkers and scholars. And that's amazing to watch what they've been able to do, especially in that Chinatown setting, which I think was a kind of a difficult setting. And they they transformed the terms and they did a wonderful job that way. In fact, we kind of have it easier because we're in a much bigger space. And so, you know, and we're also already a museum. People already come to, you know, think of us as having a reputation of being that kind of center, you know, already. So we don't have to like kind of invent it from you know, ground zero, like a gallery. But on the other hand, 
unlike a gallery and unlike some of the vanity museums that have been popping up around, we're member supported. We're public radio, basically, Mm -hmm. right? You know, we are going out begging for our donations, our sponsors, you know, and we're not trying to favor or be the, the, the love child of any one corporation or anything. And so Revenue Stream is part of the the game. And that's why I said I'm wearing two different hats. I'm a development coordinator as much as I am a curator at this point. And so, and Revenue Stream therefore affects how we start to imagine how to display architecture. So one way in which that affects that directly is that you think, okay, well, we have a bigger space, da, da, da. we could do more build outs at full scale, right? And yeah, that'd be great. That's expensive. <laughs> That's incredibly expensive. So then you find yourself, and, and I have found myself more and more wanting and needing to reach out to building partners and to construction partners and to potential partners in environmental systems and saying, okay, yeah, you know, we could do, you know, a kind of build out, but let's also think about, you know, trying to educate the public in terms of environmental products, in terms of products and architecture, in terms of, you know, full-scale implementation, so that that public, meaning those people who don't know about architecture, who don't know that, you know, we've been dealing with solar panels and window assemblies and, you know, and all of the smart materials and climate materials and so forth, can start to see that stuff before they're wondering about it on a public stage or they're having to pay for it and confused about it, right? So it becomes a kind of exhibition space in that way. And I think that that's one thing that we'll be doing over the next you know, few years in that space is trying to provide that service, whether it's a critical architectural display of the type that, you know, like, oh, a full scale, you know, pavilion might be. I don't know. And jury's still out. In best of all possible worlds, it's both. In best of all possible worlds, it's both. And we're able to do that simply because we have, you know, the many square footage of space and the double high building, you know, inside interior as well. So it sees as kind of an opportunity to be both a showcase for new technologies or for mm-hmm. new products or so while also presenting that information in not necessarily critical, but in nonetheless a contextualized and like like a museum would take the care to do instead of just like a catalog. Would that be, say, a fair... Sure, sure. You know, but I also think that it is the job of the museum to educate a wider public. And as much as we would like architecture to progress and be progressive, we also have to make that progress digestible. And we can't necessarily do that convincingly. It's hard to work with clients and say, hey, let's do this. You know, let's have this and and have them not want to just reduce that to, say, decoration or Mm -hmm. an add-on or a lead, you know, element. And instead, therefore, the museum becomes a kind of front line for really acclimating the public to architecture and to what architecture is doing in terms of its new technologies, but also its new effects, its new sensations. It's, you know, I mean, so I, I think that the museum is funny in that way, because I think that the museum has long time been kind of the hoarder of history. And I'm not opposed to that role for most museums, but A plus D is not a collections oriented museum. We don't have a permanent collection. And because of that, and because we're in this, you know, acutely urban environment, I think part of our role has to be the 
public acclimator, right? You know, so that when we have discussions about new architecture, we, the architects, we, the people who are in our fields, in academic fields, in the practitioner fields, are not, you know, tilting at windmills and can actually begin to say, oh, we might be able to get this built, right? We actually might be able to convince our client. That's exciting, right? That's what makes progress happen. So that's part of the role here. And I think it's part of the role of the display. So when Greg Lynn, for example, takes the HoloLens to Venice, right, and says, here, I'm going to show my project by a HoloLens, you know, it's not just because it's nifty, right? It's also because there is a certain responsibility that someone like Greg is taking toward advancing the way we visualize what we know how to see architecture or how we know how to see architecture. And that it's essential that not just be the private little pieces that are owned by the select group, but rather open to, you know, anyone, the 10-year-old, the 12-year-old, the 18-year-old, the person who wants to come into architecture who never even dreamed that architecture would be a viable career path for them. And so by seeing that, you know, that's an essential role of the museum, in my opinion, and it's an essential role of the architecture museum now. Another role of the architecture museum in terms of its display, however, is also being able to have a place where we who are in the field or we who are academics or thinkers in the field can support discourse through work right? And so to have critical shows, right? So for example, we're having a show that's going to show the work of City Lab, right? Dana Cuff's group that she's worked with at UCLA for 10 years. And it's a kind of retrospective of all these things that City Lab has done. And you say, well, who's the intended audience? Well, there's a public audience, certainly, but there's also a very academic audience for that. And there's very much an audience that already knows plenty, just like your architect listeners, already knows plenty about the history of architecture and urbanism and not very necessary, say, to educate them on the history of Siam or the Athens Charter before they walk in the door. And so there's also that audience. And so display for that has to be smarter. And I think that one of the roles that I am also playing as curator in A plus D is making those particular kinds of discussion forums, if you will, display as discussion forums, more intelligent overall, right? To to make them conversant, to give them an, a body of life outside of maybe just the agenda of that particular display. So inviting critics of the display, inviting discourse, inviting the contentious publication, inviting the lecture that, you know, changes or rubs this a different way, and uh, making that part of a kind of comprehensive landscape of the exhibit and the display. So it's not just standing there like, hey, you're <laughs> look at me, right? You know, but it's a uh, part of a community, always part of a community. So then Say if the main way that the A plus D museum is able to continue on is through donors and you need to have a certain level of financial success to just keep on keeping on, how would you qualify an exhibition as the utmost success to fulfill both those financial needs, but also bringing in those different levels of the community where necessarily one group in the community is not going to feel the need to support this organization because they don't necessarily see the value yet, but they mm. do want to engage in a some type of community forum. So in your own words, how would you define what a like the utmost success of an exhibition at A plus D would be? So 
The utmost success of an A-plus-D exhibition, to me, is its ability to have a life outside of it being an A-plus-D exhibition. And the two really prescient examples that I have of that that are past ex- exhibitions, one is Never Built, which I think has become mythological <laughs> in our minds. But, you know, I mean, Never Built started with a kind of like, hey, you know, to be Dunbar, who I have some big shoes to fill in that way. I mean, she was, you know, she ran everything. So just um, for, for listeners who don't know, Never Built started as Never Built Los Angeles, which was this exhibition in 2013, I believe, that showcased a bunch of projects that were either fantastical and impossible or simply just never got off the ground to be developed in Los Angeles. And so Tibby Dunbar, who was the past executive director of A plus D and had been the executive director for, for 15 years, some 15 years, Actually, maybe a little less than that, but she uh, had this idea, hey, wouldn't it be cool to have a show of these never-built works in Los Angeles? And she tapped Sam Lubell of the Architects newspaper and now Wired and Greg Golden. And the two of them took the idea and ran. And and uh, it became a grand tour of the Pacific Standard Time from the Getty. And the show was a success in the sense that there were lots of, there was lots of foot traffic. There was lots of uh, revenue stream that came from it, as well as grant money. I mean, in terms of the the economic success of the show while it was in-house. But I think the real success of the show has also been measured by the popularity of its publication that Sam and Greg went on to do. And now the opening of Never Built New York and a subsequent publication that, you know, that that will follow that opening. And I think that the idea that the A plus D show emanates outside of itself and it continues conversations outside of itself. To me, that's the mark of success. A similar show has been the Armin Hoffman show, which was curated by April Griman. And Armin Hoffman, of course, being this Basel graphic design guru who taught a lot of the kind of better, greater graphic designers of, you know, the the world. And so the show itself is rather simple. It's some sketches and some prints and a couple hanging vinyls with, you know, information, quotes from his former students and so forth. But this show is now traveling. It's like going, it was, I think, in Minneapolis. Now we're sending it to Philadelphia. It's going to travel beyond that. And so now what was a kind of A plus D, oh, we should do this. And April Griman, of course, is one of her wonderful skills overlaid on that, make a show that now is living outside of the museum. And I think that that that's super important to evaluating the, quote, success of any given exhibition. So Well, it doesn't always have to be the show that moves. I like the idea that the idea of the show at least persists in the conversations among people in our fields. And you mentioned earlier Greg Lynn's use of the HoloLens. What are some other novel exhibition techniques that you feel A plus D wants to get into more or feels or have particular potential for the future of exhibition design? Well... Our experience at A plus D has been that the newer and more virtual the technology, the less likely it is to work on a long <laughs> on a long basis. More moving parts. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Not to mention you need a full IT staff to maintain that as it's staying up over the course of three months, which is typically the life cycle of an exhibition. And so I, I mean, I think that the 
HoloLens and being able to show new environmental and sensitive materials to wider clientele and public is one thing. But I think also that there's a greater interest for us at A plus D to be able to show information diagrammatics and to have those as standard parts of architectural display. In other words, I think that that A plus D doesn't always get that wider public and in part because some of what we've done in the past was a little inaccessible. And so I feel, and I think the rest of the exhibits committee agrees, that the background information is really super important to architectural display. So while we'll continue to tap young designers for things like Come In, which have been really beautifully curated by Daniel Rago, I think that they are going to be accompanied by more literature. You're going to see a little bit more diagram, a little bit more analogic ways of presenting information such that that information becomes more and more accessible to a wider public. And I think that that's key too for how A plus D is going to be operating into the future. And eventually, you know, we've had A plus D publications in the past and we're going to keep pushing the publications as well. And the publications also geared in some ways toward the, you know, less informed but design interested audience. It's a bigger audience than we think it is. You know, it's surprising to me, for example, to walk into Target still and, you know, and see design foregrounded or Ikea and see design as concepts foregrounded there. And it's always alerting me to the fact that, you know, people people are not dumb when it comes to design. <laughs> They're interested. They want to per- have their Dwell magazine. They want their wallpaper. You know, they're watching HDTV. They're, they're getting design savvier. And so that public is not complete, you know, dummies. And the more that uh, we can be rounding out and educating that public, again, I mean, I, I think is, is, is part of what changes the impact of those exhibits that I think we've already been running for quite some years pretty successfully. And of course, you also have to cater not just to the particular sensibilities of the people who are attending these shows, but also the fact that you are in LA, you you Mm -hmm. have a pretty strong connection and local base in the work of designers and architects in Los Angeles. What do you think are the key concerns of Los Angeles simply as a city at this time and, and ones that a museum like A plus D should be focusing on? Well, there are a few of Los Angeles. So one is that A plus D is potentially also collaborating. We're still in, you know, some discussions, but a very exciting and valuable collaboration with the AIA to be what is called the center. And there's already the centers in various other cities. You know, the nicest example, I think, is the one in New York, where the galleries are curated by Bill Prosky. And so the center is a kind of seen as a sort of community gathering place. That's necessary right now. I mean, for our community, meaning that community of designers and architects in Los Angeles. I mean, we complain all the time in LA. (laughs) Oh, it's all spread out. And oh, we're kind of at Sark. And oh, there's kind of UCLA. And there's kind of Woodbury. And there's kind of USC and all of the, you know, Cal Poly. Oh, there's an event at the the Neutra House. And there's an event here. You know, and I mean, I have to say, I don't know about you, but I spend a lot of my weekends driving around (laughs) to various, you know, events and talks and and so forth. And sometimes it's the same people. (laughs) 
<laughs> you know, it's like literally like, hey, I saw you last night. <laughs> so having a center, you know, is invaluable. I mean, it's just really, really necessary in a place like Los Angeles where everything's spread out in this kind of archipelagos of, you know, of, of, of meaning and signification. And to be a part of that initiative and effort is exciting to me. But that's just one. That's just one kind of Los Angeles-tuned activity. Another Los Angeles-tuned activity, and in terms of like what Los Angeles, you know, might might need or want or what the, the area needs or wants in an architecture and design museum, it's like I've been saying before, is that, you know, when you sit down and you start to write down the names of all of the cities where progressive architecture has un- been unveiled. Los Angeles is one of them. The history of Los Angeles is a history where it was not shy about destroying what was there and building something new. And Los Angeles is, you know, I think, you know, Sylvia Levens and everything loose will land. I mean, she just nailed it on the head with that where, you know, somehow Los Angeles is this place. And so the that particular kind of topographic alchemy is not going away. That geographic alchemy is not going away. So the museum, therefore, serves a great purpose by being that place that will preview all of these new architectures and, like I said, acclimate a wider public, right? You know, and say, it's okay. It's okay. It's going to cantilever over the freeway, but it's fine. (laughs) (laughs) It's cool, right? It's good, you know? Or, yeah, it might look like a kind of giant penguin, but you'll love it, right? You know, I mean. (laughs) So it will come with some kind of agenda, pretty much, of saying, like, this is what is possible here. This is what we have almost an endorsement on behalf of the museum to say these are the kinds of projects we want. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that that's essential also for Los Angeles. The other piece of this, though, has to do with that architecture is still kind of an elite sport. And being in downtown LA now has made me very kind of uber aware that we're on the Alameda Corridor now, right? And I I live in San Pedro, which is amazing. San Pedro is like everything that you want downtown to LA to be, but is you know, uh, uh, without uh, w- without the gentrification, really. And so I drive that Alameda corridor on a daily basis. And being in downtown LA right now has made me very, very acutely aware of the way in which I think that at the beginning of the 20th century, architecture wasn't shy about its mission to kind of make architecture of the people. And making architecture of the people comes with an implicit mission that architecture is seen as something that is beneficial. Architecture is seen as something that is potential, it's powerful, it has not just aesthetic appreciation, but it's also, you know, potentially cost-saving, earth-saving, life-saving, and all of the above. What, what kind of project would that have been in, in Los Angeles from an early 20th century? Can you think of something specific? Well, I mean, I think anything from, you know, Channel Heights housing, you know, some of the early housing and, and post-defense housing of the early modernist architects in Los Angeles and all of the various versions of, you know, the the, the kind of earlier iterations of projects that now are totally desirable mm-hmm. <laughs> condos. 
<laughs> to schools. You know, I mean, frankly, California and especially Southern California led the way for bringing modern architecture to higher education. And because of bringing modern architecture to higher education, high, or, or lower education, I'd say, you know, schools, K through 12 schools, because of that, K through 12 schools became more open, more open to sunlight and environment. They became more, you know, uh, affected as a kind of courtyard and a campus rather than the East Coast model of the school as a kind of the large brick enclosed building. And that model has since been exported to almost every kind of school design in the world now, because I think we see that the natural light in the classroom, there's something beneficial about that. There's something inspiring and there's something helpful in the end about, about that, we hope. So that's what I mean by, you know, Los Angeles is has has been that place. And I think that Los Angeles can continue to be that place, but you have to be proactive. And so another arm of A plus D, in my mind, is not just the exhibits, but I see it absolutely as one pole, the other pole being education. And I have stressed that not only as educating and acclimating a public to get used to architecture, but also making sure that the A plus D acts as a center and a hub for K through 12 education and inviting students and children of all, you know, backgrounds and geographic regions of Los Angeles to have a place where they can experience and touch and see what their built environment, how their built environment becomes their built environment. And I think that's crucial. I think that's absolutely crucial. And it's not necessarily in place in Los Angeles right now. We don't have that equivalent, say. There's some engineering, say, at the Science Museum, and I think that's wonderful. But in terms of really turning STEM education into the everyday view of your your built environment, I think the museum is going to be and should provide that role. So to round things out as the final question, how would you hope to have changed the A plus D museum in, in five years time? Five years. Yeah, it's a limited window. I don't have you enough time. Get five years. <laughs> Presuming that in five years, you're not going to be leaving in five years. So you know you'll have like more stages to progress to, but that you have, oh crap, <laughs> I have five years. What can I get done? What would I love to get done? Well, first of all, I, I want to say that the A plus D museum is not just me. And there's a board of directors, and I am super blessed when it comes to the board of directors. Eric Stoltz is the president of the board of directors currently, and he is an incredible administrator who's kind, gentle, you know, and really forthright. Somehow it manages to balance those. And Nancy Levins, who's the vice president of the board of directors, and she does, you know, everything. She's just a ball of energy and she makes me feel energetic just being around her and as well as other directors, other board members. And that board of directors and all of the exhibits committees, the education committee, we have a finance committee. In fact, there's a whole, you know, cadre of people who are involved with A plus D and its vision. We share all together the five-year vision that A plus D is that center, that steward of the discipline of architecture, of the profession of architecture, of the practice of architecture, a place where we can continuously ask ourselves the role of design in architecture, design with architecture, architecture as design, 
and as well a center for those types of design that we see and encounter on a daily basis. The vision is one where A plus D is not just a place where it's like, oh, this exhibit's going on, that exhibit's going on, that class is happening, that thing is happening. But the A plus D is, and I should say takes its place as a potent umbrella for many of the diverse activities of our fields and helps to solidify, even if it's just for a moment, the goals that I think and the values that I think we all bring to the table because we got into the design professions. And that is about very much about beauty, about a kind of enlightenment. They're modernist goals. They're modernist goals. And a museum is, at the end of the day, a kind of modern institution. And I think that rather than thinking of that as a liability, I think we think of that as a great advantage. And we're, we'll be uh, making a lot of lemonade out of that <laughs> in the next five years. Elder Epstein-Jones, thank you so much for joining us. It was great to talk with you. It's been my pleasure. Thanks for listening to our Connect Sessions one-to-one with Dora Epstein-Jones. Danilo Voinov edits our podcast, and Matt Skillings composed our music. Myself and Paul Petrunia are the producers of one-to-one. New episodes come out every Monday. You can subscribe to us on iTunes and Google Play Music. And if you like the podcast, please consider leaving us a review. We are at Arc Sessions on Twitter, and you can always email us at connect at arcconnect.com. Thanks again for listening to one-to-one. One.